who is man that you are mindful of him, God. We sing this word holy to you. There is none like you. You are set apart. You are different. You are high above the earth. Who is man? Who are we that you are mindful of us and yet more than mindful, God? You see, you care, you know, you love. That though your your rightful place is high above the earth, you stepped down into this earth. And you took on our pain and you took on our sin and you took on death. And you won. And you resumed your rightful place high above the earth. And now, God, as your children, as your people, we can look to you, God of the heavens, and know that you are not only God of the heavens, but now you are God within our souls, that you are with us, that we don't have to fear what this world throws our way, that that you are on your throne, and you are mighty, and you are big, and you are strong, and you are ours because of grace and mercy. So just, God, as as your church, as we sit down to be honest with you, with our souls this morning and through this series and the the light of what you did and the restoration of, of, of mankind back to you on the cross, God, we are asking that you would do a work amongst us. God, that we would continue to experience the new life of the resurrection. God, continue to mold and change and uplift God, we give ourselves to you as your church, and we are excited to do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Be seated. Hey, so we begin a new series this morning, The Elephant in My Soul. I have received more than a few questions about what in the world does that mean, right? And so we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. 1935. In the height of the Great Depression, a Broadway musical by the name Jumbo debuted on Broadway. In the 60s, a a movie adaptation was put out. You may have seen the movie Jumbo. It's it's about a a struggling circus uh, having to shut its doors in the middle of the the Depression and being cash-strapped, as so many was. And the lead character, Jimmy Durante, uh, has a, a, a close relationship with the elephant, the main elephant in the, in the musical. And so he takes the elephant home with him. He just decides he's going to keep the circus elephant. And there's a famous scene in the movie and in the musical where Jimmy Durante is, is walking across the, the street with his elephant in tow. And the sheriff says, hey, what are you doing with that elephant? And he looks back and goes, what elephant? And he just keeps on walking. And thus... An American colloquialism was born. It's where we get our phrase, the elephant in the room. Have you ever heard of the phrase, the elephant in the room? It's a way of of addressing the the big issues that we uh, like to try to ignore, but is obviously there. At the end of the play, ironically, uh, it it was Jimmy's, uh, Jimmy Durante's uh, routine that he'd come out at the end of every time they did the play and he would lay down on the stage and the elephant that played a, a very live elephant that played jumbo in the musical would come out on stage and Jimmy would let him put his foot on his head as he laid there on stage and that's how it would end obviously he didn't put all his weight on it but what a what a visual right 
of just the, the weight of that elephant hovering over the head of the main character. And I, I, find, that, I find that visual to be powerful. We are starting a process, uh, our, our, our pathway uh, for our growth groups, something uh, we're in the, the second session of. If you, if you haven't joined a growth group, we invite you to do so. Not too late to do it now. And, and I have written the, the next section of what we call the Paseo Pathway. And so if you're interested in grabbing a copy, they're out in the hub and, the, uh, and they're available there. Uh, it's, a, it's a reading plan, but, but more than that, it's a, it's a way of helping us understand. Uh, specifically this year, we're looking at the Great Command. And, and last uh, rotation, we looked at what it meant to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. This time we're looking at what does it mean to love the Lord our God with all of our soul. It, it comes from what Jesus says is the greatest command of all, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But here's a question. How do we love God with our soul? And here's what I found interesting in studying what Jesus says there. The Greek word that he uses for soul when he says to love the Lord your God with all your soul is the word psyche. It's the word that we get our word psychology from. And it means our, our, the essence of who a person is. Your true self, that not the self you project for the world, everybody to see around you, but yourself, your truest essence of who you are. And so Jesus is saying we are called to love God with our true self from the inner place that, that we really are. Uh, not faking it, not going through the motions of religion, but from down deep of who we are. And here's the reality, though, about our psyches. All of us, because we live on this side of heaven, all of us live with wounded psyches, with wounded souls. We experience the hurt of sometimes other people's sins, of sometimes just tragedies in this world. We experience anxieties. We experience disappointments. We experience all sorts of issues that are raised that cause our, our souls to, to, to be damaged. But... Because it's uncomfortable to deal with those pains a lot of time. We just try to, in our defense mechanisms, just go on throughout life acting like they're not there. Hence the elephant in our soul, right? And so throughout this series, we're going to be taking a look at each of those types of elephants that might be there. Today, we're starting with hurt. The hurts that we experience on this side of heaven. And I'll say a couple of things about this. I, if, if you've lived long enough, you have been hurt by people, right? That, that's a part of life. You may have already dealt with that hurt, and congratulations if you have. Uh, others of us are still dealing with hurts. Uh, sometimes those hurts are going on right now in your life. You might be in a good place right now, and you're not really experiencing much of that, but I would still invite you to stay tuned to all of this because hurt's probably coming, right? We're on this side of heaven. Uh, but there is extreme hope in all of this. To do this this morning as we walk through uh, letting God into our, our place of hurt and dealing with this elephant, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. Open with me there. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in, in verse 31. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. It'll be up on the screens. You, you can turn with me in your Bible. And we're just going to be camped out here this morning. Paul, writing to the church of, of Ephesus, tells the Christians there, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, 
brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. In, in the Gospel of John, there's this incredible story of Jesus coming up to the, the temple in Jerusalem. And there's a pool outside of one of the gates called the Pool of Bethesda, and it would, it would stir at times. And, and their belief was that when the pool would start bubbling, if you got into the pool, you would be healed from different elements. Essentially, it was a hot springs, right? And so uh, they, they wanted to get into that. Jesus comes up on it, and he finds a man sitting there on the edge of the pool that had, has been crippled for over 30 years of his life. And he asks the man a strange question. He looks him in the eyes and he says, do you want to get well? Which sounds awfully heartless to say to a man that's been paralyzed over over 30 years of his life, right? But we know Jesus isn't being heartless there. He knows that he's about to heal the man and and he does. He he tells the man, that's where you get the phrase, pick up your mat and go. And, And he leaves. It's an incredible story in John 5. But that question to me is fascinating. Do you want to get well? It's a powerful question I think we all have to ask ourselves at some point or another. Because what the man reveals in his response to the question is that he had taken up the place of victimhood in his his head. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, that victimhood is a state of mind, right? And he had decided that he was a victim. And so he, he had all these blame of why he's not well, and he put it on everybody else. But Jesus looked him in the eyes and said, but do you want to get well? Forget all of that. Do you want to get well? And I think he wasn't talking about his body. I think he was talking deeply about his soul and his psyche. Inside, do you want to be a changed person? I find it fascinating that Jesus is concerned with our wellness and our wholeness. So often we see Easter as the event of God dealing with our sins, and it was that. But it was also Jesus taking on brokenness of every kind, not just our sin, but our hurt, our pain. Any way that that this world comes upon us, Jesus took it on himself. And when he walks away from the grave, he walks with not just forgiveness in tow, he walks with our wellness in tow. He walks with our wholeness in tow with him. He is coming out offering life to its fullest, he says. He has no intention of leaving us walking and limping through life, emotionally broken on the inside, but hey, I'm forgiven, so it's okay. What what kind of a message is that to the world? He wants us walking through the world whole and healthy. What what does that look like? And I don't mean just physically. I, I mean that in a very spiritual, psychological sense. That he wants to come in and, and go to work in what is in us. Paul talks about this in the, in the chapter that we're in in Ephesians 4. It's where just a few verses before he says, Listen, I have commanded you to, to take off your old self, which is being corrupted, and to put on the new self. Like taking off old clothes and the way you used to live, the way that you used to interact with the world. And he says, and, and put on the new self, which is being made new in the attitudes of its mind as it's made to look like Jesus. And you hear what he's saying? He said, God is after your, your wholeness. He's doing something new within you. And part of what that newness is, is he is going to go to work to heal those places in our soul that are broken and wounded. And so, as part of that, just a few verses after talking about putting on the new self, Paul gets to this text. He says, he says so I say, get rid of all bitterness. This is part of taking off the old self. Get rid of all bitterness, 
rage and anger, brawling and slander, slander being talking bad about other people, and, and malice, this, every form of malice, of, of maliciousness, of, of ill will to other people. He says, get rid of it. And that's strong language, language right? Get, get rid of it. Don't, don't play around with it, he says. Get, go to work on it. Get rid of it. I read several articles this week by psychologists who say that, that they, they think that bitterness and resentment are the most corrosive and dangerous of human emotions of all the human emotions that we can experience. That bitterness will, will do just a work within you to, to, to spoil what is there and the way you see the world and what's around you. So no, so no wonder that, that if that's the most corrosive of, of emotions and science is telling us that, then, then no wonder Jesus and through Paul is saying, get rid of it. Have nothing to do with it. But do you know what I find interesting about this list of emotions? Bitterness, anger and rage, slander. They're all what, what scientists or psychologists call secondary emotions. Secondary emotions. Meaning they're responses to some deeper emotions. They're not actually the issue. They're response to an issue within and so if we are going to get rid of, and what particularly bitterness and anger and rage, particularly they are responses to the emotion of being hurt. That somewhere down deep inside there is a hurt, and what is coming out being produced by that hurt is bitterness and rage and anger. So if we are going to get rid of bitterness, rage, and anger, you don't just deal with the symptoms, you got to deal with the root cause, right? And if the root cause is hurt, then that's why the very next verse, after he says get rid of it, has to do with forgiveness. Because you might read these two verses and go, what, what do they have to do with each other? Why? He's talking about us being mad and angry. He said, no, no, no. first you got to deal with forgiveness. And that's the process of getting rid of the bitterness. And so he says that, hey, you got to be compassionate and kind and forgive as God forgave you, which says this, that this morning we're going to be talking about forgiving people. And frankly, because they've hurt us, we don't want to forgive people. <laughs> and even more so, most of the people we are going to forgive are undeserving of that forgiveness, Right? They may not even be asking for forgiveness. They may never have even apologized for hurting us in that way. And yet I see no caveat in what is said there. Only forgive those that are really, really sorry and have begged your forgiveness. Right? No, he says, forgive as God forgave you in Christ Jesus. Were we deserving of God's forgiveness? Did we deserve it? Did we earn it? Does God forgive us because we fall on our face and have paid the penalty for it? No, the whole gospel is that we couldn't earn God's forgiveness, and yet he, he pours it out willingly on us even though we don't deserve it. And so that's our model. He says, go to work on the hurts within your soul with the same type of forgiving nature that God used to forgive you with. And in so doing, if you work backwards math here, by forgiving, you will get rid of the bitterness and the rage and the anger and the slander and the malice and all that stuff that is in there. You following? Yeah. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, let me, let, me, uh, let me paint a scenario for you. If you go home from church this morning and you walk into your living room and there is an elephant <laughs> sitting in your living room, how will you respond? 
My guess is you wouldn't ignore it, right? Because that would be stupid to go, oh, look, there's a gigantic elephant sitting on my couch. He has destroyed my couch. I think I'll just act like it's not there. If you're a wife in the room, you could probably blame the smell on your husband for a little bit, right? But pretty soon that elephant is going to wreak havoc all over your living room, and it would be stupid to, to ignore it and just leave it there. We know the damage it would do. So what you would most likely do is you would acknowledge and go, oh, look, there's an elephant in my living room. How about I then, in acknowledging it, call somebody, an animal service, the zoo, somebody, and say, I think you've lost an elephant. I have found it. It's in my living room. Please come and get it, right? We would acknowledge it, and then we would give it to somebody that knows what to do with it. That's simple logic. And yet we struggle to apply that logic to the elephants in our soul. And so often we just want to ignore it because it's uncomfortable. It's hard. It's not just an animal I can shoo out of my house. It's a, it's a process. It's, it's hard. It's a we just out of defense mechanism just go on throughout life acting like it's not there. And then we wonder. We wonder at all the frustration and rage and bitterness and heartache that is there. And we just keep on ignoring that, hey, maybe it's because there's an elephant that has taken up residence. So how do we deal with that hurt? Well, first, call the elephant by name. Say what it is. Say what it is. That, that there, there is a hurt here. There, there, there is a pain here. Acknowledge that it is there. Because to do, to do otherwise is to, to let it fester. I may have told this story. I couldn't remember if I told this story before. But years ago when Amy and I got married, I like telling stu- stories where I'm stupid because they, I have a plethora of them. Um, <laughs> but years ago, uh, I, I, when Amy and I first got married, we were down to like one car. We were sharing a car. Uh, and I went on a fishing trip with buddies. And, and I caught several catfish, and, and we cleaned them and filleted them and put them on ice in the cooler, and, and I came back home. And that evening, we were flying out to go, come out here to the West Coast to visit Amy's family. And so I got home, and immediately she had like a to-do list for me. Husbands, we love to-do lists. They're awesome. Um, uh, I've actually grown to like to-do lists now. Back then, when you first married, I hated them. Don't tell me what to do, right? And so I, I got in and, and started doing the to-do list. I was worried about we had to pack up, do all these things. And I left the cooler of fish in Amy's car. Not my car, in Amy's car. It was August in Texas. Over 100 degree weather, the entire week we were gone. I didn't remember it until we had landed and we're driving back into our driveway and I see the car sitting there and I go, oh no. (laughs) Oh no, (laughs) this is really bad. We get out of the little car, and we didn't even have to open the door of her blazer. I could smell it from, from 10 feet away, just this smell ruminating out of it. Oh, my gosh. It was terrible. I had to take out all the seats of the car. I shampooed the car. I took it to like the, a car cleaning service, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we got the scent. It'll cover it up. So they sprayed the citrus scent. Then it smelled like orange fish for the rest of the time. <laughs> Finally, we sold that thing. There's some poor soul driving a red blazer around somewhere going, what is that smell? I can't get that smell out of here. It was terrible. 
when you leave something where it shouldn't be, it rots, right? It rots, and it begins to have its effect all around us. And at some point, we have to take a look within our soul and ask, what's that smell? (laughs) And it might be a hurt from our childhood. It might be a hurt from our marriage. It might, if you look at that list of what Paul lays out and you see any of those symptoms and go, you know what, I struggle with anger pretty badly. Or I'm really dealing with bitterness towards my spouse right now. What's interesting is what you get angry about or what you're bitter about on, the, on that day probably isn't the issue. It's, it's one of the symptoms, part of the smell of a much deeper issue that you've let rot. Right? And so we take a look at that, and, and we've just got to call it by name and say, ah, I've got to deal with this. For some of you, that's awfully easy to do. You know exactly what the hurt was. You know exactly when it happened. You know where it happened. You have no problem acknowledging it. It was there. You know it. It happened. This is it. For others of us, it's scary to acknowledge it. For me personally, when... Amy and I first got married, she could recognize there was something wrong with me. That's a funny statement. Um, (laughs) There was a lot wrong with me, but emotionally, and, and for the first time in my life, I confessed a hurt to my wife that I had experienced that I had never voiced before because I was scared to. Oh, I knew it was there. I can give detail to this day about what happened, but I never brought it to light. I was embarrassed. I was filled with shame. The enemy had convinced me that the right thing to do is to keep that thing in the darkness. And it was having an effect on my marriage. It was having an effect on my joy. It was having an effect on my life. And in one of the most gracious moments I've ever experienced in my life, my sweet wife allowed me to bring it into the light. And I voiced something that had laid dormant in my soul for far too long. And like a breath of fresh wind, it came rushing through. And God began to deal with the hurt that had been there for far too long. It completely changed who I was. For some of you, you feel fear to voice what you know is there. And I just want to invite you that perfect love drives out fear. You find a friend within this church, come visit with me, find someone you feel comfortable with, and step into the light where God is, and let him deal with the hurt that is there. And it may be something that you're embarrassed that he didn't even hurt you. Deal with it, because the alternative is to let it rot. And it just goes to others of you, you can't really even voice what it is. You just know that you're hurt. Can I tell you, if that's you in the room, that sometimes counselors are God's greatest gifts that he can give us. People that are skilled to walk through and help us uncover what is there. And there is zero shame about that. Do you have a shame about going to the doctor when you're sick or you've broken a bone? Why in the world do you have shame about going to a counselor when you've got issues? Go. Bring it to the light. Deal with it. So if the first part is, is called the elephant by name, the second part is... is hey, let the one that knows what he's doing do something about it. 
So we, we let Jesus in. Can I tell you the secret that a lot of times we as Christians who are hurt don't like to voice? That I have discovered through the years that oftentimes we don't want to let Jesus into our hurts because we know what he's going to do. We know that Jesus, you're all about this forgiveness stuff. We know you're all about grace. We know you're all about mercy. We know that, Jesus, they were nailing you to the cross, and you prayed forgiveness for your, your soldiers. I don't want to do that. I don't want to forgive this guy. I don't want to forgive this woman. I don't want to forgive this family member. I don't want to forgive this coworker. I don't want to forgive my spouse. They need to pay for what they did. They need to be punished for what they did. Jesus, don't ask me to forgive, and so I don't want you to even come in. Just stay outside of there. And we want to stay where we are in our seat of judgment and in our seat of power and punish that person we think. Have you heard the phrase that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies, right? And we're just going to punish them. We're going to get you. And what happens is all that unforgiveness does nothing to the other person, but it is wreaking havoc in our own life. Because ultimately, unforgiveness is about a trust issue with God. And it is sin to its core. Because what unforgiveness is, is a power play. It's to say, hey, somebody hurt me because they had power emotionally over me and they did this thing to me and it hurts. And now I'm going to take the seat of judgment, which is a power seat in my soul, and I'm going to judge them and I'm going to be mad at them and I'm not going to let anybody else kick me off of it. So what you're telling God is, yes, I know it's sin to take the seat of power within my soul, but God, you're not allowed here. I'm going to do it. Thank you very much. And any time where mankind tries to take ultimate power in their lives, it always yields pain and problems. It's not where we're supposed to be. So ultimately, forgiving others is about trusting God. Forgiving others is about relinquishing the seat of judgment. I'm saying, okay, God, that's your seat. I'm sorry. You take that. And forgiving others is about relinquishing judgment, relinquishing the pain and saying, okay, God, here. And it's about relinquishing healing. I don't even know how to get well, God. You do this. And by the way, forgiveness is a process. It's not necessarily a moment. And you might have told somebody, I forgive you in a moment, but you know the truth down deep in your soul. You still hold on to all of the anger and the bitterness and the rage. And it might need to be the process of daily saying, okay, God, I'm getting out of your seat. You take the seat that you deserve. I trust you. Forgiving others can be one of the most worshipful things that we do because it expresses down to our core of Jesus, I trust you. I don't want to forgive them. I don't even like them. I'm mad at them, and yet you say to do this, and so I trust you, and I'm giving it to you. Now you go to work. As God forgave you through Jesus, this powerful Jesus that rolled the stone away, because I know what we're tempted to say is, listen, I can never forgive that person. That ain't happening. That pain is too great. You know what else wasn't supposed to happen? A dead man living. And yet Jesus lives. He majors in the miraculous. He has the ability to take the unforgiving heart and turn it soft and mold it into forgiving. And on the other side of that, to take that which is broken and rotten and make it sweet and beautiful again. 
He has the ability to, to take out the rage and put in joy. He has the ability to take out the bitterness and put in excitement. He has the ability to take out to slander and put in sweet words. He has the ability to make the dead live. That's what he does. And so we say, God, this elephant in my soul, you come do something with it because I'm tired of trying to ignore that it's there. You take over. You take it. Let, let me say a couple of things to those in the room. First of all, if the hurt that you experience, and I need to say this, forgiving others is not necessarily a full restoration and trust in that relationship. I, I, I need to say that because if, if the hurt that you experienced is abuse, either currently or in your past, forgiving them does not mean that you have to restore a relationship with your abuser. That can be a very dangerous thing. And I don't see anywhere in Scripture where that's what we're called to do. However, it is about giving that pain to God and going, okay, I'm not going to hold on to the bitterness and rage about that any longer. Does that make sense? It's I'm giving you this thing. Or it might be, not abuse, but the person that you need to forgive is no longer available to forgive. Maybe they've, they've died or you have no clue where they are right now. And again, forgiving is not necessarily a restoration of relationship in that. It is a restoration of your own soul as you relinquish the seat of judgment. However, barring those two things, if, if it's a, not a, a dangerous situation... I have seen God do some beautiful restorations of marriages. Even where the biggest pains that you can imagine have existed. And yet God comes in and the God that rolls away a stone and his dead son walks out. I have seen hearts that were so broken by cheating and scandal walk out with love and forgiveness. And a beautiful marriage exists where a dead one was before. And I have seen beautiful restoration of sibling relationships. I have seen beautiful relationships, a restoration of, of parent-child relationships. I have seen beautiful restorations of a co-worker and friendship relationships. How dare we ever look to the sky, to the God that makes dead things live, who spoke creation into the being, who we just got through saying, holy, holy, holy. How dare we ever look to him and say, oh, you can't do that. And again, we're trying to rob from God the seat of power. And he's going, don't tell me what I can't do. And ultimately, the healing of forgiving comes through the process of trusting. That God, I trust you. And I'm going to continue to trust you every day. In 1873, um, you guys can go ahead and come on up. In 1873, um, a young businessman in Chicago um, named Horatio bought a vacation for his family and he sent his wife and four kids on a boat across the ocean to Great Britain. And a couple weeks later in November, he got word that the boat had crashed and sunk and only his wife had survived. Four daughters, all dead. As soon as he could, Horatio jumped on a boat and, and he went to Great Britain to go comfort his wife and be with her in the hospital. And he found himself one night over the spot in the ocean where they believed his daughters to have all drowned. And he was hurting, as you can imagine. Down deep in his soul, he was broken. And yet... 
he turned to God. And the one he needed to forgive in that moment, there was a captain who was negligent. He had to let go of that, but, but he was mad at God. And ultimately, he had to turn to God and say, I trust you. And so in his journal, he began to write down some words. At the very moment when he began to feel God's healing, and ultimately, he wrote the words to the song we call it as well with my soul. Right? Though sorrow like sea billows roll, he says, it is well. It is well. And those are words of deep trust to God. In that moment, it doesn't mean Horatio was, was healed. It doesn't mean he wasn't weeping bitterly, but it was a confession of trust. And it was a confession that I'm guessing he made every day for the rest of his life. But what he wasn't going to do was to leave that hurt unacknowledged deep in his soul. I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know what elephants reside down deep. But my prayer is as we sing this song this morning, that you turn to the maker of heaven and earth. And you'd invite them in and say, would you begin taking away this hurt? I trust you. It is well with my soul.